0: Welcome to the Arkansas Wildlife Podcast, the official podcast of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. We are talking hunting, fishing, and conservation with engaging guests and in depth discussions with game and fish staff. It's Arkansas Wildlife, the podcast for all things outdoors in the natural state. Welcome to the Arkansas Wildlife Podcast, the official podcast of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. My name is Trey Reed. I'm Assistant Chief of Communications at the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. And we are on the cusp of spring here in the natural state. And so naturally, we're going to talk today about turkeys and turkey hunting, and our guests today are two guys who are intimately familiar with the eastern wild turkey. We have our turkey program coordinator, Jeremy Wood. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for having me, Trey. Well, look, glad looking, to be here. Looking forward to it. Uh, sitting next to uh, Jeremy is Johnny Carroll Sane, who is a writer from the Arkansas River Valley slash the Ozarks. Uh, he is the author of Hidden in the Tall Grass, essays on rural and natural heritage, and I, I would best describe Johnny's book as as being about his relationship to a lot of wild critters and wild places here in the natural state, uh, specifically that river valley and Ozark area, and uh, a lot of essays in there about his relationship with the eastern wild turkey. <laughs> Welcome aboard, Johnny. Thanks Glad for coming. to be here. Thanks for coming. Well, <clears throat> let's start with some good news uh you know there has been a decline over the last 20 years or so in in turkey hunting success turkey numbers and but jeremy you you come into the podcast today bearing bearing good tidings yeah, so.
1: <laughs> yeah definitely definitely some good news to share i mean you know we were we were struggling for for many years you know 2015 to 2019 we had probably four the five lowest reproductive years on record. But since that point, you know, reproduction has been trending upward and we're seeing starting to see a few more birds in this past year, um, 2022, we saw the highest reproductive, um, indices estimates that we've had since 2012, 2013. So, I'm I'm looking forward to this year, you know, we're seeing a lot of jakes on the ground, but I'm also looking forward to the future, you know, Fort 24, 25 should be, should be looking pretty good out there on the ground.
0: Johnny, we were talking before we started our, our recording here, you've, you're already out listening and looking mm-hmm. and, uh, you said you've, you've been seeing some turkeys.
2: Yeah, I've seen some turkeys and, and I'm very lucky. I live right next to some the turkey habitat i don't have to go far uh and yeah we, we've seen a few uh seen i actually saw a big swath of scratchings which i haven't seen in a long time i, I was thrilled when i saw that i remember talking about with my wife and actually she's there with me saying how, how rare it was to see this in the last few years but but yeah uh and then not long after that we ran into the birds um and so yeah it's so far i'm optimistic um looking forward to the season of course
0: well, it's hard not to be optimistic about springtime in Arkansas. I was joking with some folks the other day <clears throat> and I, I, Johnny, you and I are roughly almost exactly the same age. And I think the, the, the older I get fall was always my season when I was a young man, because well, it's when we chase deer and ducks and lots of other things. And it's just, you know, it's turning cool and, you know, just, you know, it, it, it stirs you a little bit, but the older I get, and I think uh, I don't know if it's a counterpoint to the seasons of my own existence, or or just uh, I don't like cold weather as much. But I'm looking a lot more forward to spring these days. Oh I used no, to I'm there. the
2: exact same way. Yeah, and as I've gotten older, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, February's rough because you yep. know if, you know you're this close, and then you get such those, a miserable yeah, month. Yeah, you get those teaser days, you know, where a warm front comes through, and but then you go down to the river, the creek, and the water's still way too cold, and turkeys aren't gobbling yet.
0: But if you're a turkey hunter. I mean, you know, optimism seems to be synonymous with spring and given the, the, the positive developments in, in, turkey reproduction that Jeremy was sharing with us, there's a lot of reasons to be excited. If you're a turkey hunter, spring's just around the corner. Given that, I want to ask y'all, what, what is it about the wild turkey that, that draws you to it?
2: Who are you asking first? Oh, yeah. you go, John. <laughs> <Here> we <go. laughs> well, um, to me, it's. Kind of like we were talking about smallmouth bass before the before we started this. Uh, a lot of the for me, the turkey is like a, a symbolic of the Ozarks, and that's where I I went. Those were those were the wildest places I knew as a boy. Uh, and I'm lucky to have family there, where my dad's from, and and so uh, hearing a turkey gobble in the spring was almost like the mountains calling, like John Muir said, you know, the mountains are calling. I must go. That's kind of how it. it the mystique is a big part of it of course they're delicious and they're also uh <laughs> challenging i mean you know um uh, they, they can actually they can be uh incredibly simple sometimes and they can be infuriating sometimes and i think not knowing what you're going to get uh, tom kelly wrote about that if we read Tenth legion you know one of my favorite books uh you don't know what you're going to get when you sit down with a bird and so that unpredictability that's part of it it's just it's all of that
0: jeremy what about you i mean you know and i think there's a probably a misperception among a lot of the public i mean they think of those of us that work in game and fish as you know managers and you know we sit in our ivory tower and make decisions but you're an avid turkey hunter and have always been what is it that Mm -hmm. that 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 stirs your soul no
1: for sure and i'm not i'm not going to be as eloquent as johnny here <laughs> talking about this should have gone first probably but <laughs> but you know I, I didn't grow up hunting actually you know i grew up fishing doing that a lot as a kid and it wasn't till i went to undergrad and started learning about wildlife ecology looking to go in on the the management side of things that i really got interested in hunting and my grandfather's big turkey hunter and so, you know, when I think about turkeys, I, I think about going out the first experiences that I had with him calling in my first bird. And, you know, I, I love that story because, you know, we're sitting there and he set up behind me as, you know, often you end up doing, you know, you're trying to get up, set up on a, a tree trunk and you got a collar sitting behind you, you know, out of the way of the gun. So that w- if that bird comes in, you don't have any, any distractions, any issues. And I can remember being there waiting. We were sitting up on this little like T intersection of a little trail and bird was gobbling we could hear it and, and I, all i could hear from behind me was you know get the gun up. <laughs> and I, was like, I was like i got the gun up i think we're good and a couple a couple seconds later get the gun up and i'm sitting here i'm trying to be quiet and i thinking i don't want to move because this bird could come out at any moment and it keeps asking finally you know i had to lean around and tricking, like yeah i got the gun up <laughs> we're good we're good um, and the bird finally popped out and ended up getting it and it was a great experience but i mean you know for me getting out there in the spring you know there's something about getting out there early you know well before the sun comes up i like to be out on the ground well before any of the birds are starting to wake and hearing in the woods come alive. You know, you hear the the whippoorwills, chuck wills widows. You know, starting to go. You hear crows starting to call or barred owls, and you know, just waiting in anticipation for that that first gobble of the morning, and that hopefully you're gonna hear. You know, it's not every morning you get to, but you know, when you do it, you know you're in the game, and that kind of that chess match is about to begin. You know, that's that's what does it for me. I mean, it's it's as much about the game as it is for actually, you know getting to bring a bird home. I I go out as like, if I hear a bird gobble, my morning's been made at that point in time. I know they're there. I've I've been at least engaged for a little while and you know, if I win, great, but you know, it's just fun to let him win and you know, be part of that. So that that's what I love the most.
0: Let's get back to talking about the, the optimism you talked about. Our uh, reproduction looked look, looks good. Uh, it's been on an upward trend the last few years. Qu- quantify that for us, uh, Jeremy. What 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 exactly are, are we seeing? What are you seeing? Mm-hmm. So when we get out there and we look at our
1: numbers, I mean, we're monitoring what's called the pulp per hen index. And that's so simply put, you know, we go out and we enlist elicit help from the public from staff other agency partners to go out there and you know just to indicate what they see on the ground throughout the summertime and you know whether it's gobblers hens or hens with poults and let us know what all those are and then we take those numbers back on the back end and all the hens whether they had hens or, or poults or not we calculate that out calculate out the total number of pults, and then we just take a simple ratio of that and look at it with it at the statewide level and then within the ecoregions and ideally you're looking for that breakdown to be somewhere in the ballpark of about 1.8 to to two pults per hen because that's basically indicating that that bird's replaced herself and then she's also potentially replaced one more and you think about it you know obviously we go out there in the spring we're hunting males they're not you know, providing any inputs into the population outside of you know their reproductive material, so their success is judged based on those hens' success. So she's got to be able to replace herself plus plus another bird. And so, looking at it, this last year we finished the season at about one point seven nine. So basically, oh, right, right on, there, right, right, on, right the on the cusp, <laughs> at, at a statewide <laughs> level. But when you start teasing it down into the eco region level. Uh, the Gulf Coastal Plain, the Delta, both saw reproduction well over two. We were looking at right around 2.2 pulps per hen. Um, the Ozarks and the tiles were a little bit lower. They're about 1.5, 1.6. But when you look at it long term, those were nearly, you know, about a half a pulp per hen higher than what we have been seeing during the 2015 to 2019 period. And those numbers, you know, there's a lot that goes into that and about how well you can sit there and put your, you know, put your pen on it and say this is exactly what it was and you know a lot of that's fueled by the number of observations we get within our surveys and so there's a lot of variability within that number it's it's just as likely that even though we saw increases that they're actually stronger than what we reported Mm -hmm. you know it could also go the other direction but just anecdotally the things we've been seeing out there on the ground it looks like you know we at least hit what we got if not we're a little bit better in a lot of places in the state.
0: And that, that survey you're talking about is, is something if, if you're a turkey hunter or just somebody who likes to, you know, walk in the woods and observe wildlife, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission would, would would love to have your your help. Obviously, uh, like like any kind of data set, the more information that goes into it, the the more accurate it, it's going to be. I know we we have discussed trying to get participation up in that. If you are interested, you can go to agfc.com slash turkey survey. Uh, that right, Jeremy? Yep. I think I yep. thought that yep. was what it was. It's interesting that Johnny is here with us today. You are a regular participant in in that survey.
2: Uh, yeah, I've been slacking a little bit. <laughs> And Jeremy has some, of, has some notes for you is, uh, uh, that we'll get I, to I, at said, the end of this. I've actually seen a few turkeys in the last week or so and have not reported them yet. Sorry, Jeremy. Um, I'll get right <laughs> on <know>. that. <laughs> but yeah, um, and I'm, I'm actually, most time when I see a turkey, that's the first thing I'm thinking about. I need to let them know. I don't give them exact... Mm-hmm. Uh, coordinates yep. <laughs> well that's a that, no that's a that's a, that's
0: a great point i mean i think we have discussed the the uh, reluctance maybe of of people to participate is yeah. uh, because turkey hunters are notoriously uh yeah, i'm pretty uh, guarded, to, yeah, know, guarded. Yeah, pretty yeah guarded
2: about that but i don't care to tell you what county it was in <laughs> Yeah, yep.
0: no, exactly and, you know what we've tried
1: to do and what i've tried to do since you know coming on board knowing and being a turkey hunter you know that it's hard to give up those locations and so I minimally ask most people just to put it in the eco region, you know, tell me within basically a 15 to 20 County area that I'm in the Ozarks, wash or whatever. Um, because that way, you know, just the number of observations we get currently, that's, that's really the the highest level that I can even review the data at, you know, it's trying to get any finer scale than that is, is just difficult. We don't get enough observations. You know, if somebody wanted to know and say, Hey, you know, what's, you know, what's the reproductive rate on the national forest on like Winona, WMA, you know, it's just the area I go hunt a lot. I couldn't tell you because we just, we don't get enough observations. We might get one or two observations out there during the entire summer period at this point. And, you know, turning around and saying, this is what, you know, our, our reproductive index was based on that is you just can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just too much variability in that. Somebody goes out and they, they don't see a hen, hen with pults Well, You say zero, but, you know, you go out next year and you see, you know, a bunch of jakes on the ground. You know there was reproduction last year. We just, we don't have the data. So you got to cross it across a much larger landscape. Um, And so, you know, people can provide it provide that location level at as coarse a scale as they're <laughs> willing to but they can also provide it as a finer scale as well and what we're hoping to do with folks that do provide that data is turn around and use it um in some hopefully some upcoming research to to get at you know some habitat suitability within the state current distribution where birds are at so then we can start hopefully doing a better job of keying in focusing some of our management efforts to improving uh, populations in certain areas or improving habitat to help populations in certain areas you know if we see that the habitat's not exactly where it needs to be but we've got an okay number of birds there you know, maybe we can do a little bit more habitat work to boost those up and see them come on a little bit stronger. So we will take that information, but then when we display it back to the public in any formats, it's always at that higher level, so people don't have to fear that you know those pinpoints are out there that everybody says, "Oh man, they saw you know <laughs> twenty gobblers here." Yeah. I think I'm going to be there next spring. You know, we we try to be pretty
0: cognizant of that, Johnny. Why why do you participate in it?
2: I uh, I feel like I. Man, I kind of owe it to the turkeys. If I can do something to help them out, they've given me a lot over the years. Um, and um, I, I hate hesitate to call it a duty, but I kind of feel like that's a responsibility. I think as a as a hunter, uh, that's uh, and I hate to call them a resource, but as utilize have utilized the resource, uh, I think it's my it is my responsibility to to help give back and to help make. Um, I mean, I. I actually when i originally went to college i went to be a biologist i just i don't like math <laughs> at all i hear that uh, makes two of us yeah so so i went another <laughs> route i went with words um but i i have a lot of respect i know what it takes to become a biologist i know i have spent time with biologists out in the field uh, different writing different stories about bear dining and, and quail and other stuff. So I understand the dedication and the work that goes into it, and if I can help make y'all's job a little easier, and that means more turkeys, I mean, I don't, I don't understand why I wouldn't do it. You know, it's not hard. Yeah. Uh, again the biggest thing me now is remembering to do it when I get back home, which I didn't do this last time. <laughs> but those are the reasons.
0: Now, once again, if you want to chip in and, and uh you know, helping wild turkey conservation in Arkansas, go to AGFC.com slash turkey survey and there's lots of instructions there and a link to get in touch with Jeremy if you if you've got questions. So uh, we would appreciate your, your participation. Jeremy, you kind of you kinda touched on it there talking about one of the reasons for this survey is to identify where to devote resources i mean you know the arkansas game and fish commission is uh, in uh, you know has a, we, we don't just manage turkeys we manage ducks and deer and and habitat for non game species and uh, so uh, the game of of uh, of conservation management is deciding you know how to best allocate resources but but dovetailing with that a little bit is you, you, that word habitat. Uh, I mean, what, where, what is the? And it's a, it's a tricky question because it's gonna it's yeah in some places it's better than it is others. But what mm-hmm. is the, what's the general overall status of, of 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 turkey habitat in Arkansas? And can we say that is the biggest? reason for declining turkey numbers over the last 25 30 years
1: yeah i mean it's it's definitely going to be up there in the top three no doubt and probably is the highest you know weather is one of those factors you know obviously that we we are dealt what we were dealt you know there's nothing we we can't control that what it's going to be from year to year but you know within our control habitats one of the biggest issues that we do see across the state and, you know you'll hear there's all sorts of um outreach and, and media going on these days different podcast platforms and talking with other researchers and uh, my counterparts and other parts of the southeast and a part of the country and you know one of the biggest factors that we're seeing in a lot of places is there's really not a lot of nesting habitat and that you know that is somewhat partial i mean you can turkeys can nest just about anywhere so you know that's maybe not as limiting as brooder and habitat, you know, areas that they can take their young after they hatch, you know, these low growing grassy herbaceous communities that, you know, there's a lot of vi- visible um, paths to move along at ground level. Insects are down there because, I mean, poults need a r- real high amount of protein in their diet during their first, you know, month or so of their lives. And they're going to continue to do that, but it's going to start to shift towards their more, um, adult diet you know over the, the coming months at that point and they're going to shift to vegetation and hard mass you know as they go into the fall but that summertime period they need those low growing grassy herbaceous conditions that they can see through and move through and you know you go out some of the cattle pastures and hay pa- fields that we have in the state these days you've got a lot of non-native pasture grasses bahia, fescue bermuda that you're all mat forming and i mean if you go out there one they're they're mowed down to you know just above the ground in most cases especially if they got cattle on them um or if they've grown up they're so thick that you're not going to move through them. and if you can't move through them real easy imagine what a pole you know that's the size of a, a baseball or so is going to be able to do in that and it's, it's basically non-habitat at that point point. and so those are you know some of the biggest issues you know we face in the state
2: It's about like quail habitat. What I'm hearing is it's almost exactly the same. What you need for young turkeys is the same as you need for quail.
1: Exactly. And that's what we've tried to, you know, combine our efforts, you know, with the sale of voluntary turkey and quail stamps. You know, we took the proceeds off of those stamps and we've combined those into a cost-share project, cost-share program to fund, additional habitat work on public land so it's not saying you know there's no other habitat work being done this is work that's being done in addition to that or helping support additional projects that otherwise wouldn't get done and because they have such an overlap in their use I mean quail need it for their pretty much entire life history but turkeys need it for that specific and most important part of their life Mm -hmm. history you know reproducing that next generation that next hatch and so the more efforts we can do on public and private lands, in particular, that we can start encouraging that kind of community on the landscape, the, the better. And I mean, there's numbers out there from Tennessee and Kentucky and some states that you know, on the landscape, you're looking at some areas that's only like three to seven percent of the landscape may even be suitable um, for for brood rearing in a lot of cases, or at least ideal. And you know, I'm sure we don't have those figures in Arkansas, but I am sure they're in the single digits here as well. And you know, the more we can do to to improve that, the better.
2: Well, and I don't want to I don't want to go too far off in another direction, but I've also noticed, and I did a story about quail habitat restoration, and and uh, that's where I first noticed the overlap between quail habitat and turkey pult habitat. Mm-hmm. But there were also other species, non game species, that benefited from that. And I noticed the more holistic, seem like a uh, view of of habitat as opposed to managing for just one species. Mm-hmm. I, I think. The, one of the uh, other, f- a few of the other species being benefited by, I know quail habitat was the Indiana bat, I believe, mm-hmm. and there was a woodpecker,
1: a uh, red cockaded. Yeah, woodpecker the red cockaded woodpecker, yeah, mm. yep. that
2: was being that was being benefited by these these habitat adjustments or managed the habitat being managed more for quail and turkeys also helped them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is that does that figure into a lot of habitat? What's the word restoration development? I don't know what the
1: it definitely does. I mean, I think what you're getting at is basically, you know, for me turkeys. There's not a lot of money in turkeys out there. They're not mm-hmm. a species of conservation concern i mean yes their their populations have been declining but in general there's still quite a few turkeys on the landscape right they're Arkansas. not they're not an endangered species it, and so you're not yep. going to be able to get some like federal, federal grant. Yeah. Yeah. right yeah. so i mean you're, you're looking at these other species out there on the landscape whether it's you know northern bobwhite that are a species of greatest conservation need in the state you've got red cockaded woodpeckers endangered species i can't remember if they're being downlisted to threatened or not but they've been at least endangered for many years and that's helped provide a lot of additional funding to maintain these early seral communities and when i say early seral just these grassy herbaceous communities in the understory not a lot of uh, hardwoods like hickory and oaks you know encroaching into the midstory. you know. so you go out there and it looks like more of a park-like setting mm-hmm. um, you got these communities that are only you know a few feet tall or less that you know, for a turkey, they can see up and over, but they're benefiting insects. They're benefiting other um, endangered species, threatened species of passerines. you know, Tweety birds, you know, that are out there on the landscape. And, tweety birds, that's a yeah. scientific <laughs> term, right? <laughs> very very <laughs> scientific. <laughs> very. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of other species that really love these. They're really, really diverse communities. And so the more we can do where we're trying to manage for that at that ecosystem approach, that larger scale that's going to benefit a lot of species, you know, the benefits to turkeys are just a bonus. You know, well, and in that, that
2: park, like that was, I mean, from what I understand, there, there is some debate about how it came to be, but like the Ozarks, especially that's kind of how the Ozarks looked when the first Europeans I, you, came. You read
0: my mind. I was going to ask Jeremy to explain yeah. what, what, what does good turkey habitat look like? And, and what does it not look like? Because I think, I mean, gosh, I've worked at Game and Fish for 16 years, and it's only been in the last probably five or six that I have fully come to understand that what I see when I walk through the Ozarks or the Ouachita's, with some exceptions— not what it looked like
2: yeah and you know? I, let me add to that right quick because i think yeah. this maybe paint will paint it help paint a picture oh you know i always heard about elk and bison being in arkansas in the ozarks and i would like, drive how, through the ozarks and like how the hell right. they walk through these trees i mean well. they're you know i can barely get through some of these thickets well the thing is it from what I understand, they didn't look like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot landscape. a lot
1: of areas, you know, particularly did, did not look like that. I mean, you go out into a, a lot of areas now, whether it's on public or private land in the Ozarks and the Washtenaw, there are a ton of trees on the landscape. And so you go out there and you look at a lot of stands and you might even be able to do this in your backyard. You know, you go out there and look and, and what do you see underneath those trees? Is it is it grassy and herbaceous or is it just a bunch of pine straw or a bunch of leaf litter? Yeah. And if, if you're a turkey and particularly a poult, you know what what are you going to find there to eat most of the year i mean in the fall sure you might end up finding some some hard mass some acorns but you can find just as many acorns in a an open woodland that's got a lot fewer but more mature trees that have a full canopy but then they've also got that grassy herbaceous undergrowth below them because the sunlight's getting to the ground and so the birds you know if you have a poor mass crop well look at all this other vegetation, all this other forage that they can eat
0: more bugs, more
1: bugs. There's more bedding cover for deer, you know, to hide in. I mean, that's the thing you you get out there. And a lot of people, I think because the habitat has changed so much. and, And most people, you know, like my age, you know, grew up probably experiencing what the habitat looks like now and just used to go out and say, well, there's, you know, turkeys out in these hardwoods and it's thick and you know, there's nothing on the ground and that's where the birds are.
0: There's a perception. This is what it's supposed to look like. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Some other writer and ecologist I think wrote about uh, shifting baselines and mm-hmm. so things mm-hmm. move a certain way. And, and the generations that are living through that never saw the way it was before think, yep. yeah, this is just the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. And, and the Ozarks have not been at all like what they look now. And I mean, you can go mm-hmm. back. I've seen pictures of my when my dad was a kid. He grew up in Newton County. And back then there were no trees. I mean, they just mm-hmm. pushed, logged the whole thing, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, and so what grew up was this really unmanaged, for the most part, uh, forest that just became a thicket. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what we see a log in today. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what, what are we doing about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, so. what,
0: how do, how do we, how do we fix that? Uh, understanding that although there are large swaths of, of public land, mainly national forest land and, you know, gaming, we're talking three and a half million acres counting national forest and other federal lands and game and fish lands. But, uh, that's ten percent of the land base of Arkansas. Uh, in that context, how how do we create better habitat? not only for wild turkeys as Johnny pointed out, but a holistic approach to at the ecosystem level. That's good for turkeys. It's good for quail. It's good for Tweety birds, a scientific term I learned just a few minutes ago. And, uh, and, and so many other things, pollinators. I mean, you know, all those that, that, herbaceous understory you're talking about and the Forbes, I mean, that's, that's, you know, we've all heard about, you know, the, the, uh, decline of pollinator populations, which is pretty, pretty crucial component of uh, life oh, on earth. You know, but w- what are we doing about it? What, what 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 where can we point to some successes and what what can we do uh, additionally to 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 make things better
1: yeah so i mean definitely you know, on our our public lands particularly there's been a lot of push you know prior to my you know arrival even with the agency which about 5 years ago we we've, we've had a big push for uh quail management and restoring woodland savanna type conditions on some of our wmas so we've got some focal areas that are out there and you know what we're doing there is removing some trees you know going in either mechanically and and mulching trees to really set it back quickly Um, or in a lot of cases we're using chemical applications going in and killing some of those midstory trees maintaining um, a lower density of just the mature overstory trees and releasing that understory um, with some sunlight and and then in addition providing or applying a prescribed fire onto the landscape and you know fire is is a tool that we have in our toolbox and historically would have maintained a lot of the state, you know, across from the Gulf Coastal Plain all the way to the Ozarks. You know, we would see that naturally occur. We would have seen Native Americans lighting fires and maintaining these early um successional communities several communities gr- grassy herbaceous <laughs> communities i get i get stuck you know being a biologist talking in no, terms that may may start you know being difficult to understand you know if somebody asked me what's early seral habitat and let's say it gotta you know, get it down to the weeds and say it's just grass and and forbs herbaceous plants um so it's going to maintain those kind of conditions and and it needs to be burned frequently i mean you don't maintain those conditions without seeing fire probably on a less than a five-year interval and in a lot of cases you know two to three years um and and that constant um active management if you will you know nowadays is is necessary to maintain those habitats because otherwise you end up seeing a lot of that woody um, encroachment come in, so you'll see the hickories and the oaks start coming in. As soon as those, you know, start leafing out, they're shading out everything else underneath them, and it's starting to, you know, choke out, you know, the beneficial plants. At that point in time, it's it's yes, you, you need some of that to maintain future forests, but it's on a pretty slow process. You don't need a lot of them. You only need a few trees here or there to make it through a fire. You know, in a little bit of a shadow um, to restore maintain that you know forest long term um but but putting that sunlight on the ground is is immensely necessary to you know maintaining quality populations of birds um on the landscape well
2: i know chris co uh shared with me and I, I wasn't didn't know this that i mean i knew that fire was part of arkansas and specifically northwestern arkansas uh ecology i mean that's you know for again whether it was man you know man created by by indigenous people uh, or, you know, natural or whatever. But, um, he was telling me that like the Oak Hickory, uh, ecosystem, you can, you can tell it's designed for fire just by the way the leaves lay on the ground. Yep.
1: Yeah. They, cur- that, they curl yeah, up they and curl that allows up allows the like, air to dry yes. them. And he said
2: like a maple, when it falls, it lays flat. Yep. And there were some other species he mentioned. I was like, oh man, I hadn't thought about that, but he's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's tender on the ground and yeah, there's room for air to get around there and circulate. It's made to burn.
1: Yep exactly and it's that's that's what was here so i mean you sit there and you remove that and you get all these other species like maples and beech and that come in and they they're more of a climax forest and mm-hmm. they they retard fire i mean that that's what is happening you know when they lay down flat and the moisture sticks to them you know fire's just going to hit those areas and go out and so that's what we're trying to encourage in a lot of places, try to remove a lot of those undesirable species that have started to encroach into the uplands. You know, they would have historically been down in the, the lower draws, you know, along creek bottoms, things like that, places like that that wouldn't have burned as much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's their place on the landscape. Same thing with cedars that, you know, they grew up out of these areas with the lack of fire, and they've taken over glade-type habitats, you know, those really rocky, low-growing, you know, pretty poor soils. But... You know they've been able to flourish because fire was excluded from the landscape and now they're choking out a lot of those areas and removing a lot of the the beneficial undergrowth that was in those areas as well let's talk a little
0: bit more about fire uh because largely understood i think uh if you you know, or are, are, are haven't been paying attention. I mean, it was suppressed throughout much of the 20th century, and that's how we got to these kind of forest conditions that are not the best right now. It, it feels like I mean, I've noticed in, in my nearly two decade career here that we've I think we've 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 turned the corner on that con- mm-hmm. considerably. And yet, fire is still, I think, misunderstood by a, a lot of our hunting public. The Smoky
2: uh, Bear was really influential. Very, very I mean, successful <laughs> campaign yeah. there. I mean, I, I know how I felt about it, but yeah, I think it is too. And, and I, would, I was going to ask that too, but because you know, you always hear about turkey nests being destroyed, growing and, season burns, yeah, and, yeah.
0: and that kind of thing. What? Break yeah. it down for us, Jeremy. Yeah. yeah. So,
2: I mean, that's
1: that specifically what I went and did my master's looking at was, you know, growing season prescribed fires in Southwest Georgia. And, you know, we had, I think maybe two or three nests that were exposed to fire over the entire time period of my study. Um, and they were burning, you know, relatively small acreages, you know, a few hundred acres, you know, at the, the most and scattered across the landscape. And so the reality is most of the areas that are targeted for prescribed fire tend to be on the, the far end of their their age, you know, since they are they were last burned. So they've grown up and they're starting to get thick. They're starting to get that woody encroachment. And the birds are actually starting to avoid those areas. They they generally tend to like to go and nest in areas that were burned, you know, a year, two years ago. Once you start getting up three or more years, it's starting to get fairly thick in there. And it, it actually becomes a little bit more of a trap for them. You know, we end up seeing lower survival rates of the birds that do nest in those areas. They tend to not select those areas as much to begin with. So there's fewer nests in there to start with, but then the ones that are there tend to have a higher risk of of failing, you know, due to predation, things like that, just because it's it's tougher to make it through in there. It's and Some of those females, even it's harder for them to get off the nest. You know, it's thicker if they get surprised by a coyote or a bobcat. You know there's a lot of stuff in the way to to get mm-hmm. hung up on trying to get out whereas in those earlier um, age classes for, since the time of the burn you know it's a lot more open it's easy to you know get up and escape because i mean she's gonna shoot uh, you know for her survival first before the nest if she can hopefully i mean she may try to defend it from other species you know smaller ones like raccoons and snakes things like that but a bobcat or a coyote you know if they're coming in that's She's going to try to survive. It's time time to roll. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> she'll she'll try again another day. So. Can
2: I ask too about predation on mm-hmm. turkeys? I know that's another thing mm-hmm. that I hear a lot about. You know, there's coyotes everywhere, uh coons, bobcats. How do how do those affect turkey numbers? in and scientifically, and re, in with data, how do yep. those affect? Yeah, them?
1: so I mean, turkeys are a prey species. I mean, just like bob whites. I mean they are on the landscape to be eaten essentially. And so everything out there under the sun is attempting to eat them from the time they're an egg and being thought of all the way to the time that they're an adult. So, you know, you can blame them. I and, mean, really, if you <laughs> have eaten turkey. I mean, they, they are <laughs> delicious. Yes, okay. I mean, you got I'm a little eggs sitting out there. Yeah. on The, the apex predator sitting
2: delicious. at this table. Uh, Agree. <laughs> yeah. uh, they you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know.
1: They do. And the reality is, from a male's turkey perspective, I mean, we are the about the number one predator mm-hmm. of a a male wild turkey after it gets you know older than a jake. I mean, we're and even jakes were probably partially there, um, or at least tied with probably some of the other species but so when you get down you got to break it out whether or not you're looking at nests poults and um, adult birds you know what's what's trying to predate them on the landscape eggs you know you're looking at things like raccoons snakes possums skunks you know they'll be out there you know meandering through if they smell a nest they may try to go in there the hen may try to you know keep them off and you know, there's a lot of opinions out there um, these days as to what's exactly going on with some of those species. Are they truly the predator? Are they depredating the nest? Are they scavenging the nest? Um, and you know, some of that, it's just been really difficult to actually go out and assess. It's really difficult to put a camera up on a nest and actually get the birds to, to stay put. You know, we've seen abandonment issues and things like that, trying to put cameras up. So I tend to, you know, if people bump birds off a nest the spring, you know, just leave it alone don't don't try to go back there and put a camera on it you know the next day or something like that the more issue you know more times you go in there and approach the bird the more likely she is she's going to leave leave that nest and and then what have you done at that point in Mm -hmm. time you set things back a little bit further so just just leave her be and let her you know do what she needs to do to get that nest off um and then pulse you know you start seeing things like some aerial predators come into the mix red tails um owls whether great horned owls barred owls um you know all those species will potentially try to predate young on the ground foxes coyotes bobcats um and foxes are and, not foxes they tend to be more of a um, scavenging type predators not you know chasing birds down as often but you know coyotes and bobcats obviously are going to be going more after those young and those adult birds in particular and you know a lot of people complain about the coyotes they see them, they see occasional pictures of birds, you know, being carried in their mouth across a food plot on a trail cam, things like that. But, you know, that's that's the least of my worries, you know, if I was a turkey, you know, on the landscape. there, There's birds, they're aware of them, you'll see pictures of them, you know, sharing a food plot or a feeding site. And the birds, you know, they're aware that that coyote's there, but they don't see it as much of a, an immediate risk or threat. You know, they're going to pay attention to it because if it does try to come in there and take them, they're, they're going to get out of there. But, you know, species like a bobcat that's more of a stealthy predator, that's the ones that they don't really see and, you know, tend to probably be a little bit more successful on birds um, across the landscape. And so those are, you know, species that I, I put a little bit more stake into or stock into, you know, the success of what they're going to do. But they're also not as, you know, ubiquitous on the landscape. There's not as many mm-hmm. bobcats running around out there as there are raccoons and species like that. So, you know, those are direct adult threats aren't as big of a deal.
0: And doesn't good habitat or quality habitat help resolve some of those predation problems? Definitely. I mean, you know, a lot of people,
1: when they think about predator control, they think about trapping or or hunting. Like, we've got to lethally remove these animals. And the reality is, I mean, you can do a lot of management through fire, through putting... Um, timber stand improvement, chemical injection, removing those trees, putting sunlight on the ground that encourage communities, vegetation communities that they don't like to spend as much time in or that increase the difficulty of, of searching so those animals don't have as easy a time finding a nest or a bird um, for that matter. And, you know, that's that's what you're trying to do. I mean, that's a that's a tool within a predator um, management toolbox is, is managing the habitat so that it's not as um desirable I mean, for habitat's those essentially
0: a a, a a predator mitigation in a sense, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Well yep. and I think people forget that turkeys evolved with these predators. I, I mean, was just they've, they've been the, here way before we the same were. Thing. you know, yeah. and uh turkeys made it just fine. Uh, mm-hmm. uh so I I don't know that there's an increase in coyotes or bobcats and and I don't think there is. Uh, there may be some in raccoons for other reasons, but mm-hmm. but yeah, they've always been here. Yep. Um so I don't see that I think some people try to cast them as a new villain and I've, I've never yeah, understood I think that. you're right.
1: Yeah, I and mean, they're definitely not new. They they've been here. I mean coyotes, you know, they moved in probably over the last century or so, you know, as you had red wolves and other things mm-hmm. kinda still so you had large out, large predators. Predator. But yeah. there was a large predator here yeah. that was maintained probably at some lower densities than coyotes do, but in general we still had them. And so it's not a new experience. I mean for any of the birds, especially that are on the landscape nowadays, that they've known all of these predators their entire life. You know, there's some argument that, you know, the land use changes that we've put in have managed for better predator habitat than, um, or or predator species, you know, their habitat needs than a lot of these, you know, prey species like turkeys and quail. Um, You know, the, the more we can do to try to improve the habitat for those species, the less likely, you know, predators are going to have an easy of a a meal, you know, if you will. Um than they do now. It's going to be harder for them to move across the landscape and and find those, you know, nests or or find those adult birds. All
0: right, so as this podcast is is dropping, we're mid-March. We're still um we're still a few weeks away from turkey season, and some hunters would point out that we are, over the last few years, even farther away from the opening day of turkey season than, than, than we may have been 20, 25 years ago uh, or even uh, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, turkey season starts later. Uh, Jeremy, I just want to give you an opportunity to to talk about, you know, why that has been your recommendation to the commission and why the commission has adopted a a later season structure and and i'm sure you hope we'll continue to do so for Mm. a number of years
1: yeah i mean obviously a year like this year makes it tough you know when you have as early of a spring as it seems like we're having right now you got a lot of the uh, Bradford pears and everything like that are already starting to bloom out. I mean, I've got a hickory in my backyard that's already got the catkins on it. Mm-hmm. Leafs trying to pop yeah, out. Yeah, y'all's red buds here. Oh, the Popping. red buds Popping. are Yeah, yelling. they're not at home yet, yeah. Yeah. but yep. they are here So yet. it's it's always tough when you see, you know, a spring like this, because it's, it's not every year that we have them, you know, time out this early, but... You know, in general, what we've tried to do is push back our season a little bit later. You know, long-term average for turkey season going back into the early 80s here in Arkansas was right around the 9th and 10th of April. Um, prior to that, there may have been some years that it was more consistently right around the first part of April, like first of April. But in general, it's it's been around that first week just after first start. And we pushed it back to around the 15th to the 23rd on average is what it's going to be based on calendar creep because we're we're opening on the third Monday in April now. And what that does is time us in and around peaks in nest initiation or egg laying in the state. So going back over the past 20 to 30 years with turkey research with observations from our turkey and quail pop population survey that's run through the summertime or it's run year-round nowadays but you know on those observations from June through August you know we can backdate based on the age estimates that we get of those poults when they were were hatched when that nest was likely laid and incubated and that tends to fall right around that 19th of, of April and a lot of that's fueled by day length it's you know it's not nothing to do with the temp or probably has some to do with temperature and things like that but in general day length has more influence on the timing of nesting than the latitude within the state or even elevation probably within the state And so we've tried to push back to allow most of that breeding activity to occur prior to putting hunters on the landscape and starting that removal process. Because as soon as you remove a tom, he's no longer breeding a hen. He's no longer potentially passing his genes on to that next generation. So the more chance we can provide those birds to to get done what they need to do, the better. Because I mean, this is essentially this is the only game bird species in North America that I'm aware of that you know we hunt during the breeding season. Most other birds, you know, we hunt during the fall, That's a good point. and yeah. you know, where there's likely some impact of, of having hunting ongoing during that process. So we're trying to allow most of that or a good majority of that process to occur prior to you know putting hunters out there on the landscape and removing birds, so that hopefully more of that reproductive process occurs on the front end birds start to to go to nest and kind of become more synchronous if you will because right now what we're seeing in a lot of research out there is that that reproductive process in a lot of states particularly in the southeast is stretching out over a long long period of time and you know if you think about it you've got a species that ideally likes to be fairly synchronous and when they nest. So the more nests on the landscape at the same time, you get this idea of you know predator swamping. They, they can't mm-hmm. get all the nests. So hopefully, you know, the more nests you have on the ground at the same time, the less of them, they get lost due to predation. But when you have fewer of them on the landscape, potentially you've got a longer period of time for, for other animals to sit there and key in on that, you know, resource and pick off, you know, what is there. And so we're, we're trying to shift that a little bit
0: it seems like any time there's change i mean as humans we are averse to change i think uh, and and there was considerable i don't want to call it pushback but i mean people were not necessarily happy about the the the, the later start but uh, Johnny, I want to ask you, as you know, someone who's who's turkey hunted your whole life. We were talking about some 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 personal observations uh, with successful turkey hunting before we started recording. What do you What do you hear from other turkey hunters? Because I think there's been a little. We've been in in this season structure long enough now, and I think the people, most of the people, who really. Both of the people who are hardcore turkey hunters really love turkeys and I think they understand it. I think mm-hmm. it's analogous to to some of what we've seen with our, our Green Tree Reservoir Management and Waterfowl. I mean, yeah, nobody was happy that we were delaying the the flooding dates when you could go hunt flooded public timber in Arkansas, but I think those people that really love duck hunting understood like yeah but this is what's got to happen and I think that's the same way with turkey hunters johnny where do, where where do you where do you see it and what do you hear from other turkey hunters and 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 if you would share share some uh uh some of your recent personal experiences will, with, with late season turkey hunting.
2: I, I will and and of course from the scientific perspective i'm yeah i'm i want more turkeys I don't even care if I can hunt them i mean i want to hunt them but I just want turkeys i want people mm-hmm. to go out and hear turkeys i want my grandkids to go out and hear turkeys yeah. in the spring that's part of spring in arkansas so from that perspective i'm 100 behind it from the hunter's perspective i'm killing birds and i'm not an og turkey hunter i'm second generation the, the og original gangsters <laughs> they're the ones that taught me <laughs> but i remember when i was learning from some i mean some grand turkey hunters that, that were pioneers in arkansas or close to it they would always tell me if you found a tough bird, you couldn't kill it with the year. The last week of season was usually when you could kill it. And that was back when our season, I think around four weeks. I can't remember. Lord, that's been a long time. There, A long time ago, it seemed like turkey season lasts forever, or so my wife said. And <laughs> I know it would run through May because it would be getting really hot. And if they would, they told me if you have a tough bird, you've worked, you know, gone to a few times and he's hand up or whatever, go back that last week of season and you're probably going to kill him if you can kill him and that's that held true uh, i was telling the story yeah, about about i encountered a turkey the only time i've ever encountered one that had gobbled himself horse and would not make a sound though he was he was head was you know doing all that and i was close enough i was in 50 yards and i couldn't hear him and there were three hands out in the field not paying him any attention um and he was so locked in on them actually that i could crawl around on the ground and got in position and called him about 20 steps closer um, another bird, I remember this was on private land that I hunted all year long. And I knew he had a double beard. I knew he was a beast of a bird and there were two other guys after him and we couldn't kill him. And I think it was the last death season I found him and he was lonely <laughs> and he gobbled at donkeys. He gobbled at logging trucks. He gobbled at cattle. He gobbled at everything. He gobbled at me and I ended up killing him. Uh, but it was a bird I'd mess with all season so I don't I don't really understand you know why you wouldn't want to hunt later it seemed like it gets better to me yeah it gets hotter there's more ticks there's more mosquitoes but the turkeys that weren't working before seem to be able to more apt to work later in the year Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and you get this idea you know that the birds are gobbled out you know that they're they're you know you get out right now I mean there's birds gobbling out there as we well, maybe not as we speak, but you know, this morning there's probably birds out there on the limb gobbling, and you know they're gonna gobble early, but you know before the hens are receptive. Um, and a lot of the research that's out there, a lot of that gobbling activity is is increasing in most states right up until the hunting season. Then, as you might expect, as soon as you start removing males from the population, well, that that gobbling goes down because dead birds don't gobble, and then the other birds that are left out there. You know, they're starting to deal with that pressure on the landscape. So just because we start the season later doesn't necessarily mean that gobbling is going to really decline all that much. You are gonna, <clears throat> you may have some birds, because they are you know, still actively breeding, they may not gobble as much on the limb. They may put more stock into spitting and drumming, fanning out there on the ground. You know, because the, the hens have done what they're supposed to do. They go to him. You know, we're trying to get mm-hmm. them to do the exact opposite as a hunter and get them to break all tradition and... and lose all you know their their morals and ethics and, and and come to us you know and and seek out that bird that just won't come to them um i'm losing my train of thought here but getting uh, excited uh, <laughs> about <turkey. I> <laughs> you can tell it's springtime <laughs> yeah. you can tell it's springtime
2: well, so so turkeys don't have a quota on gobbles i mean they don't have a limit they get <laughs> no and they get no, no exactly okay. i mean I and mean, even
1: the last couple of years you know i'll talk to some folks and, oh i haven't heard a gobble you know all season and you know, it's like, well, I, I went out yesterday and I heard one, you know, just rattle off the limb. I mean, 130 gobbles here, you know, before 7 a.m. And I've I've had that happen the last week of the season, you know, on some areas. And you know, those birds are gobbling. It's each one's got its own personality, and so you just you never know what you're going to get out there. You got some birds that just won't gobble much, but there's still a lot of lot of action, a lot of activity, and fun times that you can have late later in the year.
2: And later in the year the creeks are warmer so you can pack a fly rod. <laughs> and after you turkey hunt, you can go jo- get in Johnny Carroll saying <laughs> not miss an opportunity to plug a no, small, small- uh, fly fishing yeah. Yeah. for so, smallmouth yeah.
0: bass in the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. Uh before we wrap things up, I want to you, you you touched on this earlier Jeremy, but uh you 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 talked about research uh just kind of as we're wrapping this podcast up looking ahead uh, we, we've talked about looking ahead to turkey season but what are what are some projects that are going on right now that are helping us gain a better understanding of turkeys in arkansas mm-hmm.
1: yeah definitely so i mean we've been the last few years we've been doing a little bit of, of harvest rate monitoring on some smaller properties that have more um public and private interspersion a lot of the research we've done in the past has been on the you know the ozark washington national forest proper these big large public land tracks that you know are getting harassed day in and day out you know they're they're public everybody can go there um so but we wanted to look at some of these other smaller areas where you've got more of this interspersion with with private land because you know those birds are going to be moving freely between those different properties and dealing with very different hunting pressures throughout the season depending on where they're at and see if those harvest rates line up and so far they do seem to be a little bit lower which is encouraging to see they seem to be more at least within the historic literature where where we should be versus you know the those larger public land tracks that we were seeing significantly higher harvest in a lot of areas um which is, is concerning and it's difficult to try to, try to manage against while still providing, you know, a lot of opportunity for folks to get out there. Um, and then also what we're trying to do, we piloted it last year, we had some setbacks this year, so it's going to, we're going to push it off till next spring, but we are looking at starting to track goblin chronology throughout the state from the North to the South, you know, cause we get a lot of, um, feedback from hunters in the Southern part of the state, you know. The birds are gobbled out down here you know because spring green up happens earlier in the southern part of the state and starts working its way north into the mountains and you know I don't anticipate there's going to be a lot of changes um, in goblin activity across those regions but this is going to give us very consistent non-biased data that's consistent from the north to the south and how it's required acquired um, it's going to remove any personal biases you know whether you got an individual out there that just can't hear as well as somebody else not picking up a gobble um, but it's also going to provide us a significantly larger picture of what's going on because we're going to track gobbling activity from the beginning of march all the way out through the end of may each year moving forward um you know historically when we've done some gobbling routes things like that you know we've got a handful of staff will go out and they might go out you know twice you know ahead of the season the track and you know, with a lot of birds gobbling, you can go out on a beautiful day. You think they're going to be gobbling their heads off and you hear nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's birds in the area, but you can count a lot of zeros. Whereas this, you know, we're going to put them out and, well, we get that zero day, but the next day we catch all those gobbles that wouldn't have been recorded by that that human observer. So hoping to have that and something that we can publish um, going forward that you know folks can see and look at what that activity looks like statewide in these different areas. Um, and then we're hoping, we're working on some proposals now to see if we can't start mapping that habitat suitability, population distribution, the current distribution, um, occupied habitat, things like that, that we can then use to, to further improve how we manage in the future. So we're, we're hoping to kick that off. We will see as uh, that comes to fruition. But that's you know just kind of a teaser for, for what we got
0: going on right now. Sounds like some good stuff. Well, guys, uh, it has uh, been a blast before we wrap things up, Johnny, I want to give you a chance to, uh, plug, plug your book. Uh, n- not just because I-, I want you to sell more books for you, but I-, I think, uh, anybody who loves the outdoors, who loves nature, uh, who loves good writing would, would benefit by, uh, consuming the words in here. I've read it and it is fantastic.
2: Well, I'm not good at plugging myself, but. Which is why I'm forcing you to do it. <laughs> I actually, I- I've been writing for about 10 years for various publications Uh, outdoor life field and stream bitter southerner um, hatch fly fishing uh, mid current fly fishing and this is a collection of i think the best essays i've written uh for a lot of those publications Um, and i originally actually put it together i was just going to make it i was i wanted to publish it and have it for my grandkids um be some i'll summarize here my dad passed when i was young and he never met either one of my daughters and I know they have a lot of questions about who he was, what he did, who he was as a person, and they didn't have any record except my memories and memories of other family members. So I wanted something I could give to them, and then I actually sold a few that I didn't expect anybody to buy, any. <laughs> and I sold a few. So I I rethought that, and so now it's available. It's available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, um, and Noble, uh, and and if you're in Jasper and Jasper, actually Emma's is closed up though. I know.
0: It's heartbreaking. It is. That's where I, just, I bought my copy at the Elk Festival just, last year. She
2: just posted it yesterday. The oh, Emma's Museum man. of Junk is closed. Officially oh, closed. Yes. That's that's but disappointing. There are new outlets there and actually up <laughs> going up Highway Seven, my my grandparents <clears throat> my grandparents opened a Who'd Have Thought It Gift Shop on Highway Seven. And my uncle ran it for forty years. He just it just changed hands to another family member but you you can buy the book there unless they've run out. That's Uh, just north of Lurton. Yeah, just north of Lurton, and then just south of Lurton at Sand Gap, Pelser, uh, Hankins General Store. They sell them there. Um, There's just a few other outlets. I'm working on that, actually, getting them out into other places. But... um, Anyway. Well, it's, it's
0: a fantastic book. Well, and uh, you, any, anybody uh, who, who enjoys uh, turkeys, the subject of this podcast, or as I said, just uh, uh, the, the Ozarks in particular, but Arkansas Outdoors, I think, would, uh, would would enjoy reading it. Guys, it's, it has been a blast. It's been very informative. Uh, uh, I think I learned a couple of things, that Johnny is uh, not an uh, original gangster, but he is, <laughs> he is the second generation of OG right. turkey hunter, and that it is okay uh, in the biological community to use the words Tweety Birds to describe <laughs> pa- Passerine Birds. It's a good summary uh, of the podcast. <laughs> it's, been, it's been fun, guys. Uh, uh, Jeremy Wood, Turkey Program Coordinator for Arkansas Gaming Fish. Johnny Carroll Sane, uh, Arkansas writer. Thank you both for being here. We'll see you next time on the Arkansas Wildlife Podcast.